My guest today is a photojournalist who, since 2006, has been covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. His work has been presented in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Newsweek, Time, Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, and various other outlets. His footage was also used for PBS Frontline's program Obama's War, which was a 2010 Emmy Award nominee. His latest work is his feature documentary debut, Hell and Back Again, which tells the story of Marine Echo Company 2nd Battalion 8th Regiment, and specifically Nathan Harris, and him being severely wounded in Afghanistan, and the emotional and physical hardships he has in coming back here to the States. Welcome, Dan Fung Dennis. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, I just wanted to uh, start with what, what was your genesis to this project and briefly describe what is Helen Back again about? I had been working as a photojournalist for a number of years, and even though my images were being published, I felt like they were having no impact that after so many years of war, society was numb to these pictures. And so I needed a new way to convey the realities of what was happening there. And so I moved into shooting video, but actually with a small stills camera. And in 2009, I was informed of a very large offensive that was taking place in southern Afghanistan, Helmand Province. 4,000 Marines were being dropped into an insurgent stronghold. And this was a decisive operation to try to swing the war in, in, in a new direction. And I was embedded with Echo Company 2-8 of the 2nd Marine Division. And they were dropped 18 kilometers behind enemy lines into this stronghold to seize a key objective. And shortly after landing, the Marines, about a company of 100, 130 men, moved into a village where they were surrounded by insurgents and attacked and the, head, the fighting was extremely heavy. It focused around this pile of rubble that became known as Machine Gun Hill. And after the first day, one Marine had been killed. Uh, the Marines were collapsing from exhaustion. And we had nearly all of us had run out of water. And in my years working there, this is one of the most dire situations I'd been in. And on Machine Gun Hill is where Nathan Harris handed me a bottle of water. And that's where we first met. And I could see he was an exceptional leader. He was very experienced and was was extremely courageous. And so I followed him and his platoon as they pushed further into this stronghold. And, and so I got to know him quite well, and that's where the story began. But I didn't actually have any intention of, of making a film until about six months later when I was back in North Carolina waiting for the Marines to step off the buses to reunite with their families. It was a very emotional scene with, with crying and cheering and relieved families embracing their, their returning sons. And I soon realized that Sergeant Nathan Harris didn't step off the bus. And so I asked the guys, where, where is he? And they said he was hit two weeks ago. And I called him up, and he was being released from a naval hospital. He had just undergone six surgeries, from being shot by a machine gun round in the hip. He was in extreme pain and distress, and he was feeling guilty from having left his men behind. Yet he invited me back up to his hometown of Yadkinville, North Carolina. And he introduced me to his wife, his friends, and family as 
this guy was over there with me. And instantly I was accepted into this rural Baptist community. And I essentially lived with Nathan and Ashley during his recovery and his transition from this world of life and death back to a community that had very little understanding of what he had just been through. And so it became a psychological portrait of, of this man coming home from war and what, what a toll that is and how difficult that is. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, that, the, the fascinating thing, I, I think, especially to me, was uh, the fact that you came to Afghanistan. You had, you know, obviously you were there as a representative of an outlet, this, that, and the other. But you had no intention, like you said, of making a film. You had no shot list. You had no financing. You had no planning of this, that, and the other. But the footage that you uncovered and how you did it, I mean, was extremely compelling to me. Like, go into the detail about that, about how, you know, like, what like what was your instinct? Did, was there just something you just felt like, okay, put the camera on and, and, uh, and just do it? Or, or, you know, like, because you weren't intending to make a film. So I'm, I'm super curious, like, what was that initial spark? It was that frustration with still imagery that photojournalism wasn't conveying the brutal realities of what was happening, that it was too easy for people at home to be indifferent to this conflict. And I wanted to shake people. And so over the course of about uh, six months, I, I built a camera rig that was able to capture very powerful cinematic video. And this camera rig was, was built with, of a, with a Canon 5D some custom microphones, and a Steadicam-like device designed for the situations I was going to be in. And so I tested this in the field over a course of months. It took me months to get my arm strong enough to even hold it. And, and then it was this beginning of this operation. I knew that this was going to be extremely important to cover. And, and I got a cryptic email saying, be at Kandahar Airfield by midnight on this day. And I knew this was it. I knew this was the beginning of the operation. And, and so... I, I started there and just let the story evolve. I worked as much as I could as a photojournalist, just simply letting events unfold in front of me and letting the story take, take me and take me where, where it might. I didn't really have a, a, a shot list or, or financing, as you said. It was, it was just going, going where the story uh, took me. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's, it's amazing, too, the way... That you shot with you shot this all on a Canon 5D, and you know we've been hearing about you know other films being shot on this that, and the other, but being in such you know in the middle of the you know the desert in Afghanistan in a major offensive, uh, what tell us some of the, uh, the both the the advantages of having a film like the Canon 5D and some of the, maybe the disadvantages or some of the hardships that it took to actually capture on the camera. I'll definitely start with the disadvantages. The camera would overheat after a few minutes of shooting in that 130-degree weather. And with only one camera body, I had no choice but to simply let it shut off and, and cool down. And that was usually during the most interesting moments when I wanted to keep shooting. And that was extremely frustrating. There was nothing I could do about it. Then there was the dust. The dust got into everything. And the moment before the opening scene with all these helicopters beginning this large offensive taking off, this dust was just swirling everywhere from the rotor, rotor blades, and it got into my camera, into the shutter button, 
and it got stuck in the down position and I couldn't record video. I couldn't start. And I had all these esoteric questions of, of what am I doing here if I can't capture this? Should I even go? And, and what's my role? And, and then I just used my fingernail to dig the dust out. The shutter button popped back up and I was able to start recording and I stepped onto the helicopters. Wow. And so I made sure every day to clean my, my lenses and my camera and get as much dust out as possible. And then there was just lack of electricity. I didn't know when I was going to be able to charge my batteries again. And, and so I just shot very judiciously. I was constantly thinking, well, is it even worth turning the camera on at this point? And many times it just didn't shoot because I was concerned about my battery life. And then the hard drives, I just had a limited number. And so I, I again, just shot, shot only when I really needed to. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, I have to say, especially like, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of different um, war docs and we've seen a lot of, you know, um, things like, you know, like uh, even programs like PBS's Frontline or various others and whatnot. But I was, it, that was the thing that was so impressive is the fact that it's like it really felt like you were like really there, like the way that it was captured through uh, through the Canon 5D camera and, and the way that, you know, just it felt like you were um, like uh, like the, you know, an onboard camera with those soldiers, you know, like, uh, and, and what I, another impressive thing about it, I felt like, um, was also how you structured the film because you, you constantly cut back and forth between Nathan being back in the States after his severe injury and him in Afghanistan. And I, I definitely want you to maybe talk about working with Fiona, Fiona Otway, who, um, has been not has worked on Academy Award nominated uh, uh, films, uh, documentary films, as well as won the first uh, um, award at Sundance Film Festival in documentary editing. And what was that like? And and taking all this footage that you know uh, you had just put together and that you had you know gone together, and especially it being your uh, you know featured debut in many ways like how, what was that process like in in the editing and, and in crafting the film and structuring it the way that it was when i got home i had this immense amount of footage that i didn't really know what to do with i had never made a film before i didn't really have any anyone else i was working with and i had been deeply moved by rock and fragments who had been edited by fiona Otway. so i contacted her out of the blue and I showed her some of my work. I talked about some of the ideas I was thinking about. And we just started exchanging messages. And, and then she came out to London where I was living. And we looked over some more footage. And um, I was lucky enough to get some funding. And we, we started working together. And she was brilliant. She is so gifted and so talented. And we spent a lot of time just simply talking, just unpacking our own representations of war. We try to separate these false mythical versions that are often conveyed in movies that there's honor and glory in war and it focuses around combat. And, and so I had to pull out the more real, often more brutal version of war that we don't often see. And I realized in the making of this that warfare and the experience of warfare isn't what just simply happens on the battlefield. It's everything that entails coming home. And that personal psychological struggle is often more difficult than, than 
than combat and fighting itself. And, and so we, we structured the film to go back and forth to try to meld these two worlds that often are very separate and dealt with separately. And I felt strongly that this is one experience, that when you transition home, that's just part of it. That's part of warfare. And, and so Fiona spent a lot of time on these transitions, going from Walmart to an Afghan battlefield, then back to um, a doctor's office, and then back to a patrol. And she was amazing at, at creating these transitions that, were, that felt very seamless. And it took a lot of time to make it feel right. And in the process of editing, I, I came up with a, a sound design that used sound that I'd collected in the field. I felt strongly that I didn't want to add any sound effects or anything that wasn't real. I wanted this to be brutally, brutally honest. And so no, no music except, you know, at the end credits and, and over the video games. And so I did need a glue, though. I did need something to meld these two worlds together. And I did need another way to convey some of these emotions that I couldn't otherwise in images. So I took two sets of sounds. One very emotional, uh, human crying, and then another very warlike, metallic um, uh, machinery. And I would slow those down to 2% and 4%. Mm. And at those speeds, they create these very low drones. Mm. And I would underlay those certain scenes to give a sense of the disorientation of the isolation and the emotional numbness that often comes back with uh, reintegrating into society. And so we used those during the edit to, to meld these two worlds. We'd often drift the sounds of Afghanistan into back North Carolina and the other way around. So really sh try to make it, try to show that the fighting doesn't stop when, when these men return home. It just continues in a different way. Yeah, it, it, that, that made for an, an, a very interesting and, and in some ways kind of a frightening portrait of... Uh, of not just coming home and whatnot, but, you know, with those low drones that you have in there, just kind of, uh, I mean, just, I think really emotionally extremely hits you and gets the idea of, like, you know, what it is to be a soldier and to be back and this, that, and the other, and how it starkly contrasts with the environment around him. Um, specifically about uh, about uh, Nathan and, and working with him, um, were there ever times that you felt like it's fascinating how much in the film, you know, is surrounded with him with handguns or guns or this, that, and the other, which, you know, obviously in some ways is cultural in some ways too. I mean, it's part of his occupation. And so obviously it's definitely a thing, but were there ever points that you felt like because of maybe his emotional or psychological state that there were points that you felt, a genuine kind of, you know, on edge or at, at fear, not that he was ever going to strike out at all, but just because that was so much a part of, you know, of, of parts in the film. Nathan was trained from a young age by his father to become a fighter. And he was taught to shoot when he was 10 years old. He was trained to be a champion wrestler in high school. And he knew he would become a Marine. And, and the, also the rural area of North Carolina, guns are a part of our way of life. But I think more importantly is 
the fact that when you're in Afghanistan, this this counterinsurgency for them, it's like fighting ghosts. They can't tell who the enemy is. They're this invisible force that attacks them and then melts away. And at any time, they could be killed. And their weapons is what keeps them alive and each other. And so when they get home, those weapons and those instincts is, is what kept them alive. And it's very hard to turn those ingrained set of, of reactions off. And they stay on. You still have that lurking deep feeling somewhere that you could be attacked at any time. And, and so I think for Nathan, his weapon is almost a, a security blanket. It's, it's something that makes him feel safe, just, just in case. Because he's coming from a world where people were trying to kill him every single day. And, and so there are some disturbing scenes where he does have this handgun. I mean, he takes it everywhere. I mean, he goes to bed with it. He goes to Walmart with it. But at no time did I actually feel unsafe. Actually, the opposite. Because we had been through such difficult experiences... And, and we had seen so many horrific things. Back at home, I felt very safe around him. He, I was within his circle. And anyone within his circle, he loves and he protects. But if you're outside of that, if you're designated as an enemy, he is a trained professional killer. And, and so I think it's, it's part of the same idea that the experiences that come back with you Many of those instincts that kept you alive over there also come back with you. And it's very hard to turn those off. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, one of the, Another interesting thing, I, I, I want to maybe go a little and transition a little bit about you and, and being a photojournalist and, and, and doing that. You know, uh, there's this um, famous quote by Chris Hedges, former war correspondent for the New York Times, in his book, A War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. And in it, he says, the rush of battle is often a potent and lethal addiction, for war is a drug. Do you feel like not just for soldiers, but do you think in some ways, um, for photojournalists, for you specifically, uh, do you think that that is the case? And, and, you know, after going through all these hardships or whatever, what keeps you going back? You know, like what makes you able to process that and to continue on? Yeah, that book of his, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, I think he's trying to allude to the sense of purpose and mission that you have when you're at war, either as a journalist or as a combatant or as a Marine, that what you're doing is life and death, that it's extremely significant because these decisions you're making are, are, are critical for the, the lives of you and those around you. And so when you come home to a world where the decisions you're making are what to buy and, and, and what, what mortgages and bills to pay, and all that seems very mundane and trivial. So I think on a very superficial level, there's that idea that combat is addictive. But for those of us as journalists, it goes much deeper that it's, it gives you meaning, it gives you purpose, that what you're doing is significant and you have this place in society of you know your role. You know your role is to convey these, these very brutally tragic events to others, to try to shake them, to try to show them what's happening in an effort that you might be able to end them. 
And and so it's that same thing I think for Nathan, where he's come from being a leader of men to one where he's completely dependent on his wife for everything. He's dependent on his medications. And and so it's I think many do go back, not for the rush of battle, but for the brotherhood that you have with their, your men, and for that sense of sense of purpose. Mm. Yeah, it, it, an interesting thing that you, you've said also is you were talking earlier about this and alluding to this, um, and you talked about how you feel like uh, visual imagery is a powerful medium for truth, um, and that, but that you believe the visual language is dying and the traditional outlets are collapsing. So in the midst of that upheaval, you've got to create a new language. What do you mean in specifics about that? I had been deeply moved by images from past wars. I vividly remember the first time I opened the book Inferno by James Noctway. These are images from the past 30 wars, uh, 30 years of war that he had taken. And, and they seared into my mind. I, I first understood what evil exists. And, and his images and his work as a war photographer was a moral act that by bearing witness and conveying the realities you could change people's understanding and in a hope and a hope prevent these mistakes from happening again as reminders of these of these tragic conflicts and so i wanted to follow in that tradition to try to contribute um, and and so i did i did work as a photographer for some time but i i came to realize that even though i i love this beautiful language of photojournalism it doesn't have the same effect and power as it once did. The iconic image of the napalm girls running down a street from Vietnam, that's, that's burned into everyone's collective consciousness, and we will remember that when we think of Vietnam. And it's not like that image hasn't been taken in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I don't think there is an iconic image from these wars. And it's not that it's not been taken, but it's been taken so many times that, that it doesn't register with us. It doesn't have any impact. And so I'm hoping to take the, the ethics and the methods from photojournalism where you're just trying to honestly and truthfully convey what's happening, but use different technologies and new mediums. And so by combining it with the narrative of documentary film and new, new tools, we can try to create these extremely visceral, powerful experiences to convey emotion and, and try to give just a glimpse of what it might be like to go to war or experience war or come home from it. And so I'm very interested in trying to blend photojournalism with filmmaking and, and even virtual reality to create powerful, visceral experiences. Yeah, and, and, and you actually, after this film, created a new... Uh, uh, a new application for filmmaking called Condition One, uh, uh, talking, uh, dealing with that. Uh, uh, go into a bit more detail about that. So Condition One is my next project, and it's a direct evolution from the film. The film I was able to convey much more than a still image. I would have, I had context, I had story, I had motion, I had sound, and in the same way that I went from stills to the moving image of film. I'm trying to take that same next step from film into immersive experiences and creating a, a, a application for tablet devices 
that makes you feel like you're actually inside of a story. You feel like you're there. And, and this is a specialized camera system that captures the entire human field of view. It replicates the process of what your eyes are doing. And then we developed software that replicates what your brain does to translate that visual information. And we've developed an iPad app called Condition One mm. that we're releasing on October 21st mm. that gives these extremely visceral, emotional connections to stories that seem very far away and distant. So it's just trying to bring people closer using a new medium and new technology. Mm. You, you asked the question, can photojournalism, filmmaking, and technology, a, a blend of those things, plead for peace and contribute to the future? Um, I mean, obviously this is a hard question, and maybe in some ways it's like left unanswered in, in the film or what you continue to do, but do you believe that that is possible? That's the hope that, you know, we don't know if there's will ever be a world without war. I mean, it's, it seems we've had it for, for ages. It's, it's this persistent human behavior that continues, but it's that hope that we can contribute, that we can at least try, we can at least try to try to prevent it from happening. And, and so it's that hope that, that by using these, these new tools and these new languages, we can we can try to warn people of of the horrors of war, and and just give them more thought before we enter into another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially for you as a as a photojournalist, I know. I mean, obviously, you know, photojournalists are just as much as uh, soldiers are in the thick of it, are in just as much danger, and this, that, and the other. In, in your case, you lugging around all of these, you know, discs and this, that, and the other, and all these stuff to to capture this stuff at the same time and having body armor, but still, you know, you are just as a threat. And, you know, even though you are embedded, I mean, uh, you know, we even heard, uh, this sadly this, this past year, um, Tim Hetherington, um, dying in, in Libya, um, who co-directed the film Restrepo. I mean, do you continue here in photojournalism? What, what, you know, uh, what, uh, what keeps you going back despite that danger and that possibility of not coming home? Yeah, Tim's, Tim's passing was, was deeply saddening. He, he was our inspiration. He was our prince. He was the one that led the way. He was pushing storytelling in, in so many different ways. He was interested in mass communication, whether it be through photography, filmmaking, or art. And, and so his loss is a reminder of, of these real deep costs that come with working in these, in these places. But I think it's also important to remember that it's, it's absolutely critical that we have people like Tim to be sharing and shedding light on these dark places. And so I think it does come with cost. It comes with risk, and that, that's part of it. Um, but it doesn't mean I think we should, we should reassess and, and know if we should still be there. It's absolutely critical that we're there. And, and so, you know, I don't know if I'll go back to Afghanistan. I just, I don't know. Um, but I do want to keep pushing this tradition of, of bearing witness and, and, but just hopefully in new and different ways. Mm. Yeah. Now in the future, you were saying that you, you may, you don't know if you're going to go back uh, to Afghanistan. What is the future for you in photojournalism or in filmmaking? 
I'm fully engaged with uh, Condition One, this technology startup. I'm working with a very small team, very talented team of designers, developers, filmmakers, and and we're trying to invent this new technology. And so the hope is that we'll be able to open this technology up to anyone who's interested in using it, and that we can push forward this next generation of, of content that we can create very powerful visceral experiences for anyone that wants to use it. And we're trying to make that um, the next standard. And so that's what I'm working towards, trying to evolve photojournalism into, into this next stage. Mm. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dan Funk Dennis. Um, it's quite an exceptional film uh, for anyone listening. Uh, it's playing currently. It, it opened October 5th at Film Forum in New York. Um, and uh, it's opening uh, today, October 14th, here in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, you can find out more information about Hell and Back Again on uh, hellandbackagain.com, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. And the Facebook page, Hell and Back Again. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Dan Funk Dennis, and uh, you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks for having me.